This week in the Dan Cave, now that we're past the Thanksgiving holiday, I'm going to try to stuff as much as I can into this episode. The Seahawks with a big victory. Lots of positives to take away from the Vikings win, but should we be concerned about the passing game? And likewise, has Russell Wilson dropped out of the MVP race? Mariners general manager Jerry Depoto getting ready for what should be an active winter meetings next week. A couple of intriguing starting pitchers he should pursue who just recently became free agents. And news on the coaching carousel for both the Huskies and the Cougars. How might Chris Peterson's departure affect the rivalry? And will Mike Leach still be around for the next Apple Cup? Or is he exploring greener pastures? I'll come through the rumor mill for you. Seahawks, Mariners, Cougs, Huskies, all up next in the Dan Cave. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Fies. Welcome back into the Dan Cave, everybody. Hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, holiday week changes routines, changes things up. A little, a um, couple of non-traditional atypical episodes last week. Hope you enjoyed my Thanksgiving episode and uh, uh, also my my personal feelings and take on the Apple Cup and Mike Leach and what it means to the Cougar football program. Uh, if you listen to both of those, um, despite the fact that your routine's changed, maybe you're not in your car as much, not commuting as much, I appreciate it a great deal. Hit subscribe so you always get notifications of new episodes. We do the Dan Cave weekly, if not more. And uh, once again, a lot to talk about, but I want to start, I want to go back to that Thanksgiving episode just for a minute, because as I listen back to it, I always listen back to my episodes just to make sure there aren't any glaring corrections I need to make, and also just to self-scout, think of things that uh, I could do better, uh, make things more entertaining and more interesting for you, the listener, Um, and, and there was a major, major omission that I had when giving out thanks to some of my favorite Seahawk players and specifically listing guys that had to overcome a lot, that were counted out, that weren't major prospects, Steve Largent, uh, foremost among those. And then I listed all the quarterbacks, Jim Zorn, Dave Craig, Matt Hasselbeck, guys that weren't big stars in college, weren't high draft picks or draft picks at all, and then had to fight their way up through the ranks to become successful quarterbacks. And I left out the greatest one of all, and the one who had to overcome the most as far as perception goes. I didn't even mention Russell Wilson, which is insane. And maybe it's just one of those things where, as I was writing the outline, I was focused so much on kind of finding the guys between the lines and the ones that weren't so obvious. And and uh, that's one of the reasons they meant so much to me. But Russell Wilson stands out uh, above them all. Greatest quarterback in Seahawks history. Um, and even when he was taken in the third round because he was deemed too short to play in the NFL, it was still criticized as a pick with the Seahawks. And uh, not only did he go on to start as a rookie, but he brought us a Super Bowl championship and almost another one. And I believe there are others in his future. And um, I am very thankful for Russell Wilson. I just wanted to go on record as saying that. That's that's how high uh, his status is is and that's how important he is is he gets thanks even when it's not thanksgiving so big seahawks win on monday night uh the record in primetime games i think is up to 26 5 and 1 something like that or maybe it's 29 it's either the six or the nine it just depends on which way it's facing um but another outstanding win and once again 
Uh, they give us all near heart attacks and take years off of our lives um, as they move to 10-2 and two and now technically are in first place in the NFC West. Identical record to the San Francisco 49ers, but obviously by virtue of their win on Monday night a couple of weeks ago, they have that inside track uh, to the division championship. And currently, if the playoffs started today, and I know they don't, I know they don't, but it's fun to talk about. Um, they would be the two seed in the NFC, and for the first time since 2014, I believe, 2015 technically, I guess, the playoffs, uh, they get a bye. Um, and it's it's fascinating to see some of the reaction to that game and, and to see some of the differences among different outlets. The national media and their reaction to this squad. Some love them. They seem to be number two in most of the big power rankings that are put out every week out there behind the Baltimore Ravens. Um, I just did a mock five-round Seahawks draft, which I'm going to write up for Seahawk Maven next week on the Draft Network. And they actually have the Seahawks winning the Super Bowl uh, because they have the Seahawks at number 32 in their draft position. Um, Yet... Rival fans don't take them seriously, say they're lucky, hear that word a lot, and I get that. I mean, rival fans never want to believe that their rivals are actually good and that there's some sort of fluky nature to it. Uh, 49er fans would have us believe that the only reason the Seahawks won a couple of weeks ago is because they didn't have George Kittle. Um, Well, they had George Kittle against Baltimore and didn't win, so I don't know what that does to that argument. 49ers are pretty beat up right now overall. And I didn't have this in my notes, but it occurred to me this week, and this reminds me of the 13-14 Seahawks. Have you noticed how beat up and injured the teams that we've been playing recently come away from our games? The 49ers had five or six significant injuries, and guys that couldn't play weren't 100% the week after. Happened in Philadelphia last week. A lot of injuries during that game. And this week, we're already seeing it. Some guys from the Vikings are banged up. Uh, I think it's just, you know, a testament to the how physical they play. Yet the Seahawks really are coming out of these games pretty healthy. Um, with maybe one exception that's worth watching, and we'll touch on that in a minute. Uh, but you can usually brush off what rival fans think. But I, I want to say this about the word luck. Because you're seeing this a lot. Even the analytics guys, the Vegas odds makers, don't seem to respect what the Seahawks have done. Uh, this reminds me of the Mariners a couple of years ago with the when they had the, the negative run differential, but they won over 80 games. Um, the Seahawks only have a three-point average margin of victory so far this year. While the Niners and the Ravens and the Patriots are all in double digits. Um, New Orleans is similar. They're at about three. But they're saying that because of that, simply because of that, that these are all such close wins that they're lucky to be 10-2. and Here's the thing. If you use the word luck in regards to a large sample size in football, you disqualify yourself in the debate. That's just football. It's been a cliche for years. The, The ball's shaped funny and it bounces funny. I'm a firm believer that luck equals out. You want to talk about 
Seahawks were lucky to beat the Rams because Greg Zerloin. Why do I always pronounce that way? Zerloin, <laughs> like tenderloin. Zerloin uh, missed what would have been the game-winning kick. Well, our guy missed a kick too. You know, and you, and you can always go back to other plays in that game that and make the argument that that the other team was lucky too. That San Francisco game is a great example. 49er fans want to say that we're lucky that we won that because Chase McLaughlin, their rookie kicker, missed a kick. Well, how many game-winning interceptions did the Seahawks have in their hands that they dropped? K.J. Wright, right in his bread basket, dropped it. That's bad luck for the Seahawks. Good luck for the 49ers. Kept him in the game. Game would have been over at that point. And there were other plays throughout the game that are like that. And here's the other problem I have with the uh, the overemphasis on the average margin of victory. Is Here's two good examples. The Atlanta game. Where were the Seahawks up? 27-0 at halftime? 24-0 at halftime? Dominating that game. Took their foot off the pedal. Played a soft defense. Let Atlanta throw the ball around and get back into it. Same thing against the Vikings. You know, they had a 17-point lead in the third quarter. It looked like they were going to walk to an easy victory. And then who could have imagined that fluky play where the ball gets batted up in the air and Russell tries to do the right thing and knock it down, but right as he's trying to hit the ball, he gets run into by a Vikings lineman, and the ball stays up uh, for the pick six. Those are crazy plays, that the blown defensive coverage that led to the Laquan Treadwell long touchdown. Those are fluky things. That should have been a bigger win. If they had to grind through all these games and they they never grabbed the lead until the last second and and you know most of those 10 wins came on miraculous comebacks maybe there would be a little more credence to their argument but I just don't believe in luck when it comes to football there's no luck column there's a win column a loss column and a tie column there's no luck column Seahawks have 10 wins and you want to talk about luck Look at their two losses. Crazy driving rainstorm that affected the game. The San Fran game with that strange fumble and and Von Bell returning it for a touchdown swung the game. A couple of fluky plays in the Ravens game as well. You know, the bad pick six from Russell. And then the fourth down stop where a couple of guys missed tackles. A couple of plays in either of those games. And they could have gone a different way as well. I I make this point with um, with the Cougar season too. As as much as six and six is a disappointment, you know they were three plays away from being nine and three. You know Mike Leach lost the Oregon game because he didn't have his quarterback milk the play clock as much. Oregon should have never had the time that they ended up having to march down the field and get the game-winning field goal. So that should have been a win. Obviously, the UCLA game up 32 late in the third quarter. They should have won that game. You know, one play, if Desmond Patton doesn't fumble that one hitch route, that's a win. Um, And then the Cal game as well. So uh, the Arizona State game, you can make that argument too. Uh, The Arizona State game came down to a a fourth-down play, I believe, the scramble by their quarterback. So... I just don't take luck into account. Um, Seahawks fans, however, 
seem to be changing how they view this team. And here's what I mean by this. Earlier in the season, and I'm guilty of this myself. Earlier in the season, there are many Seahawks fans who couldn't even enjoy the victories because they were focused on the things that that they didn't like about them. The Rams game, for example, Carroll not going for it on fourth down. Or the Ravens game, I'm sorry. We didn't go for it on the fourth down uh, in Ravens territory. And then the Ravens did go for it on fourth down on the next drive, and it led to a touchdown, and that was the difference of the game. Things like that. They can't, they haven't been able to even enjoy some of the victories because they're so concerned with the minutia of things that happen during the course of the game that they don't like. I don't get that sense this week. I think Seahawks fans are starting to figure out this is who they are. I wrote about this on Seahawk Maven this week in my closing thoughts. This is just who they are. Like, it was a hard column to write this week because I found myself about to write the same stuff I'd written for weeks. It wasn't pretty, but it's a win. It was ugly, but it's a win. Not everything went their way, but they ended up figuring it out. That might just be who this team is. But the one constant is that time and time again, we see this squad, especially in the last few weeks, since the roster has become set, some of the new acquisitions, Quandre Diggs, and some other guys have stepped up and played better and improved. We're getting to the point, aren't we, where we know we can count on this team to respond to moments in a game where things aren't going their way, to hang in there, and to turn the tide. I really wasn't nervous at all Monday until the 17-point lead started to witter away a little bit. But even then, I was confident because the running game was consistent. Things were going our way. But even early in the game, Vikings are up 7-0. I thought a buddy of mine texted me and said, O-F. And I simply texted back. I said, they're going to be fine. I didn't hear from him again until later in the second half when things were going well. And uh, and he just highlighted my they're fine text and gave an, an exclamation point. My point was made. I just felt like they're going to be fine. Felt that way in the 49er game, honestly. Down 10 nothing. Felt like just a couple things hadn't gone their way. And I felt that way in the Vikings game. The only reason the Vikings went down and scored to make it 7-0, take the early lead, was a couple of missed tackles. The most exciting thing about this team is you can see how high their ceiling still is because they haven't played a complete game yet. And even though I say this is who they are, I, they have it in them. We haven't seen it yet. We've seen it from all the other contenders. We've seen how good San Francisco and Baltimore and New Orleans and Green Bay and Kansas City can look when they have everything working. Each of those teams has had more than one of those types of games. Not the Seahawks. Not yet, anyway. But there are signs it's going to happen soon. On defense, Clowney coming back and playing a good game, having energy, making an impact, looking athletic, 
after the scare from the week before, hearing about the core injury, that he was meeting with that specialist in Philadelphia, the guy that worked on Lynch and Baldwin. And usually he's like Dr. James Andrews when it comes to elbows. Usually you meet with that guy, you're having surgery. And most of the reports are Clowney's going to have to have surgery on that sports hernia after the season. So to play through that, it's tough. That type of injury in that type of area affects every one of your movements. Your core strength is everything in that game. But that stop he had on the goal line where he just blew through his guy and single-handedly took down the running back and bullied him backwards when he didn't quite hit him with momentum, that showed core strength. We haven't heard how he's felt since the game. Today we'll get our first practice report. I'm sure they'll limit him. But if he can manage it like that, like he says he's going to the rest of the year, and he certainly seemed to feel good after the game because he was as as excited as any player in the locker room in his post-game interviews. He was talking Super Bowl. He is a huge key. And him coming back from that injury, which Houston Texan fans told us wasn't going to happen when he missed that Eagles game. The crap you saw online from Houston Texans fans. Ah, There he goes again. He's soft. He's injury prone. He's not tough. That's just a scorned lover not wanting to see their ex succeed. That's what that is. Did Clowney have some injury issues when he entered the league? Yeah, he had to have microfracture surgery on his knee at a time when microfracture surgery on knees wasn't a perfect or a known quantity. There were still some unknowns about it. So he missed basically his whole rookie year and part of his second year. Since then, in three seasons in Houston, only missed three games. How does that lend itself to not being tough? I'd say he's disproven that at this point. Seeing Rasheem Green's continued development, especially in the running game, is outstanding. Um, If you're a Seahawks fan on Twitter, you need to be following Matty Brown. Um, He is now a a member of of our Seahawk Maven group, and he's one of the best scheme analysts I've seen on Twitter. Um, Sometimes it seems like he's speaking a different language to me, but... He's outstanding. And even during games, he will tweet what he's seeing. And he tweeted last week that Rasheem Green has become, believe it or not, an elite run defender in the league from the defensive end position. In just his second year, 21 years old, was the youngest rookie in the league last year. Some were disappointed that as a third-round pick he didn't contribute last year, but you see the development now. And that's exciting to see. Uh, There was consistent pressure again on Cousins. They affected a lot of throws. Trey Flowers had another good game. It's starting to look like this isn't a fluke. This isn't a guy just having a favorable matchup one week, making a couple nice plays. Week in, week out now, he's making plays on the ball. And that interception, which some felt was pass interference, but a little side note here, I saw some plays on both sides of the ball on both sides of the ball, that the NFL is starting to let defensive backs play a little bit more. And that's good for the game. 
But that play he made, breaking on the ball and then just taking it away from the receiver, I think it was Diggs. His reaction to that, my biggest criticism of him as a rookie and earlier this season even, is he just gave up too much ground, too much cushion. and didn't seem to have that explosive break step on the ball. But Pete Carroll talked about it this week. He has... It's taken him some time, but he has now mastered that kick-step technique that you hear so much about that Carroll teaches his corners to use. And he's becoming a guy that affects games now and changes games. And whereas just three, four, five games into the season, I would have said cornerback was one of the top two priorities for the Seahawks in the upcoming draft, that they were going to need to find a starting caliber corner still think they're going to need to draft corner because the drop-off after Trey and Shaq is pretty significant. But it looks like they've got a hell of a pair of bookends uh, to play together for the next few years. That defense is really coming together. They're getting contributions from every level. You didn't even see a drop-off last week when they limited Michael Kendrick's snaps because of that hamstring injury. And Cody Barton played about half the game, the rookie, out of Utah. And you didn't see a lot of drop-off. The one concern is that Ziggy Ansa left late in that game. And when I saw him walk off the field, I turned to Eric. I said, oh, no, I think we've just lost him for the season. His right arm was dangling like he, he couldn't move it. And it was the right shoulder that he had surgery on in the offseason. I thought he had re-injured it. Now, according to Pete Carroll on his radio show yesterday morning, He didn't re-injure it. The actual injury in the game was a stinger that he felt better after the game. The stinger is not going to be an issue. But he did also acknowledge that the shoulder injury is something that's still not 100% and he's had to battle through all year long. We'll know how much of that is coach speak when we see how Ansa recovers from this. If he goes out and plays Sunday and looks like the guy we've seen the last three weeks that can have an impact on a game then we can breathe a big sigh of relief. Because seeing Clowney and Ansa, Puna Ford, Jaron Reed, his ability didn't even, didn't even put him in my notes here. But who thought he was going to even play this week after the way he left the Philly game, couldn't come back with that re-aggravating that ankle injury? He played the whole game. Pushed the pocket, made some impact. So, particularly if Ansa can come back from this, we're finally seeing all the pieces in place. They use Shaquem Griffin again on a couple of pass rush opportunities. They're more varied in their looks now and in their scheme, and teams aren't quite sure where they're coming from, and it's having an impact on the opposing offenses. On offense for the Seahawks. That running game looks like a playoff running game and the type of running game that can control games. The Vikings aren't as elite as a run-stopping unit as they have been the last couple of years. I think they're right in the middle of the pack, 14th, 15th in the league. But that was as consistent a performance as we've seen from the Seahawks running attack in a long time. From the beginning of the game to the end of the game. Sometimes there's stops and starts. Not Monday. From the beginning to the end. They were able to get push on physical inside runs. They were able to find gaps and seams. 
and break some big runs. And at the end of the game, when the Vikings knew that they had to stop the run to have another chance to get the ball back and try to tie the game, they couldn't stop him. Remember how I talked about Joey Hunt after the San Francisco game? Called him a red flag. Thought he was getting bullied. He got uh, beat up inside by the 49ers interior line. Fletcher Cox blew him up a couple times in Philadelphia. Didn't happen on Monday. Didn't happen on Monday. That little guy's playing pretty well. And that line seems to be coming together. Uh, they got the Baldy's Breakdowns treatment on Twitter this week from Brian Baldinger. Did about a seven-minute piece on him about how well they're working together as a team and picking up things, working together on double teams, things of that nature. Um, the way they use George Fant on Monday as an extra tight end as much as they have all year was cool to see, and it had an impact. He graded out, uh, according to Pro Football Focus, as our highest-graded offensive lineman for the week. And they even found opportunities to get Jamarco Jones into the game for DJ Fluker. It was a situational thing. It was in the second quarter when the Seahawks were pinned deep in their own territory. And they put Jones in and he had a couple of great inside blocks. He's an exciting young player. But the best part about Monday's game was the one-two punch from Chris Carson and Rashad Penny. And you've heard me say, man, I wish they'd figure out a way to use them in the backfield at the same time. Kind of the way the Browns are using Kareem Hunt. And Nick Chubb. I don't think we're ever going to see that, apparently. But this is as close as it comes. Their snaps and carries were split almost 50-50. And it looked like, you remember remember the Carolina Panthers, oh, five or six years ago when they had that dominating rushing attack. And it was D'Angelo Williams. And then um, it was the kid from Oregon. Um or the kid from Washington that went to Oregon, Stewart. Can't remember his first name, blanking out on that right now. But they were such a dominating running duo for that one season, and they had different styles. Stewart was an inside runner that was going to run you over and pound the football. D'Angelo Williams was shiftier, quicker, could get to the edge more, more of a cutback runner. Reminds me a lot of Carson Penny. Carson's going to punch you in the mouth. And Penny, while he's... 230 pounds himself and can do that as well. He did near the goal line. We saw some good, tough, hard runs where he's he's running guys over. He's more the guy that's that can that can make you pay, that can get it outside, even though you've got decent contain, decent angle on him. Their styles are a little different. They make the other team have to think. And they're figuring out now how to use him. Even early in the season when they Pete Carroll kept talking about how, well, we want to get Penny involved. We want to get him involved. They would just do it in spots, and they would do it for a full series. Typically in the second quarter, they'd throw him out there, and they would just give him a series. And if it didn't happen for him, they go back to Carson. You might not see Penny again until the second half. Or they would use him in the hurry-up or different situations. But now they're rotating those guys in. One play at a time, two plays at a time. Absolutely love that. This is what the team envisioned when they took Rashad Penny in the first round last year. Well, two years ago, technically. This is why I liked him coming out of college. I liked his film. I could see the logic, and we can go over that again sometime. But as he continues to perform well, the criticism of that pick is going to become much more silent. Because this, this is what the team wanted to see. Give teams a different look. Keep guys fresh. 
keep guys from getting run down as the season goes along. Chris Carson's never made it through an entire season healthy. This is going to help. Meanwhile, there are some concerns on offense. Or maybe I should pose that as a question. Should we be concerned about the passing game? Russell has not been great since the bye. First six games, his passer rating was over 100. Five of those six, it was over 114. That's outstanding. That's why he was in the MVP conversation. He had the clunker against Baltimore in bad conditions, had the bad pick six. It was just an off game for him. Rating is 65.2 that game. Then he came back with two strong games, back-to-back ratings of above 130 versus Atlanta and Tampa Bay. Since then, 86.9, 75.4, and then he was good on Monday, 98.9, despite the uh, the fluky pick six. Is there a reason for that? Is there a cause for concern with the passing game? Not all that worried about it. Keep in mind, Lockett has not been 100%. Got hurt late in that San Francisco game. Um, still didn't look explosive against Philadelphia coming off the bye. So that may have been a lingering thing. And then you've heard about the flu bug that swept through the locker room this last week. Sounds like Lockett was as affected of it, er, as affected by it as anyone, but also carried it into the game as much as anyone. And there are... Multiple reports from reporters who saw him throwing up in the locker room after the game. They used him basically as a decoy on Monday. I think he only got two targets. Josh Gordon is still working his way into the offense. DK Metcalf is having his moments, although he needs to stop putting the ball on the ground. But he had a solid game Monday. You can see, you can see how much Russell Wilson loves Jacob Hollister. They spent a lot of time on the sidelines engaging and talking about things. And Wilson was looking for him more than anyone on Monday night. But there are still, I think without Lockett being at his best, that may be what's affected this game more than anything else. But also on Monday, Minnesota changed up their scheme a little bit. They played two deep safeties almost the entire game with the intent being... Take away the explosive plays. Take away the deep shots. It was a busted coverage, thankfully, on that 60-yarder to David Moore. But they basically didn't have the respect for the Seahawks running game that a lot of other teams do. Mike Zimmer said as much after the game. Said, we didn't think they'd run the ball as well as they did. And we didn't think they'd run it as often as they did. This is a good sign to me. This means Brian Schottenheimer, Russell Wilson adjusted their game plan on the fly to what the Vikings were giving them. So instead of trying to force a bunch of deep shots, they said, okay, we'll just run it 45 times. How do you like that? So I I think down the stretch, Russ is set up for a good finish. Uh, we'll find out in L.A. this week. Conditions shouldn't be an issue, obviously being in L.A., and he's going to have to be good Sunday because the Rams are really good against the run this year. They're the third best team in the NFL, allowing only 3.7 yards per rush. They're middle of the pack in pass defense. 12th in the league, and opponents passer rating allowed at 87.7. Still need to run the football, but Wilson's going to have to have a good game. And he hasn't always down there. 
The Rams game can be a statement. I think people are tending to overlook this game. It's a sense I get because the Rams aren't the Rams of last year and the year before. They've struggled mightily at times this year. This can be a bit of a trap game. Rams are coming off a good win, a complete win. The offense looked good. Don't assume this is a lesser Rams team than we've seen. They still want to prove they can beat us. I guarantee you, they really want to beat the Seahawks. They want to impact this division race. They're still in the wildcard hunt. But, I think it's a chance for Seattle to show the Rams the division has changed. It's the 49ers and us, and now you're on the outside looking in. I don't think the Seahawks are overlooking this game at all. There is ample motivation. They have to keep winning to control the division. And this seems to be when Pete Carroll teams play at their best. When they have that edge. doesn't matter who they're playing. So you don't have to worry about trap games, typically. Even looking ahead to next week in Carolina, they just fired Ron Rivera. They're going to have a new coaching staff. Good timing, by the way, that they fired Rivera two games before the Seahawks play them so they can kind of get a feel for any different approach they're going to take. But even a team like that that may be struggling and in turmoil and changing coaches, Seahawks are going to show up with that edge because they want, they know how important that buy is. Pete Carroll teams tend to play their best when they know they cannot afford to lose. One final note uh, on the Seahawks. I mentioned him already, but Jacob Hollister. Um, I was disappointed and upset. I think I talked about it on here. I wrote about it for Seahawk Maven that he didn't make the initial roster. Thank goodness no one claimed him. Thank goodness he was able to sit on the practice squad for six weeks and nobody signed him to their 53-man. Jacob Hollister is a legitimate player. And he's not just a one-trick pony. He's not just a glorified wide receiver. He had some key blocks in that game on Monday. And he looked more than just willing to mix it up. He looked capable. Baldinger even pointed it out in a couple of his breakdowns. How he got in, stuck his nose in there, got physical, turned some guys. Jacob Hollister needs to be a long-term piece of this team. I would love to see an extension for him in the offseason. Because once Will Disley comes back from this Achilles injury, and finally, I'm hopeful that he'll put his injuries behind him. Two major injuries in two years, and we've seen how good Will Disley can be. Imagine that duo of Disley and Hollister uh, for years to come. They need to make that happen. I, I think the way Carroll has been talking about Hollister, going out of his way to talk about him, I would imagine that he is a priority for John Schneider and that Seahawks organization. Before we switch to baseball, I like to tackle these questions from time to time. The, who do we root for? And most of the time, it has to do with the possibility of of rooting for a team that we don't like, but knowing it may benefit us. Like if the 49ers were in a situation where they had to win a game to give the Seahawks an edge, do you root for the 49ers? Well, of course you do, because that's all that matters. I think we tackled this earlier in the year when it was Arizona playing San Francisco. But this one's unique. Sunday, in New Orleans, Saints and the 49ers. 
49ers lost that classic in a driving rainstorm to the Ravens on Sunday. They played well. Man, they're good. You may not want to believe it, but the 49ers are legitimate. And they go to New Orleans to play a Saints game, or a Saints team, that is currently holding the number one seed in the NFC, and they would love to hang on to that. So there is a benefit no matter what happens to the Seahawks. If the 49ers win and the Seahawks take care of business in Los Angeles, then the Seahawks sit in the number one spot in the NFC. That's where you want to be. Get a bye, two home games if you win, and you would host the NFC Championship game. So that's a big deal. And you look at the 49ers' schedule down the stretch, not exactly awe-inspiring. But if the Saints win, then the 49ers, if the Seahawks take care of business against the Rams, would have a full one-game lead in the standings. 11-2, 11-2, 10-3. Plus, by virtue of their win over the 49ers, it's a virtual two-game cushion. Which would mean that there could be a scenario in that case where the Seahawks going into Week 17 against San Francisco in Seattle wouldn't have to win that game to clinch the division. Seeding, the one or two could still be up for grabs. But likely they wouldn't have to win that game. So there is some benefit no matter what happens. I still believe the best thing would be for the Saints to win. And then you would hope that they would lose another game and and that the one seed is still in play. But first things first, win the division and get the two seed. So go Saints. Let's talk some baseball because we are on the verge of the winter meetings next week. And there's already been some activity around Major League Baseball. Uh, Cole Hamels just signed with the Atlanta Braves today on a one-year deal for $18 million. There's some trade talk, some free agency chatter. Sounds like Zach Wheeler is going to sign soon for seven figures. Things are heating up with Steven Strasburg and, of course, Garrett Cole. Um, But there's some Mariners news this week. So teams, the deadline came for teams to have to tender contracts to arbitration-eligible players. The Mariners were a surprise. They didn't um, tender Tim Beckham a contract. That wasn't a surprise at all. He's currently suspended. Didn't figure to be part of their plans anyway. But Domingo Santana was non-tendered. Makes him a free agent now. He's no longer a Mariner. That was a bit of a surprise. It's unfortunate. When he was acquired last year for Ben Gamble from the Brewers, he was a guy who had previously hit 30 home runs. He was coming off a bit of a down year, and he had the great first half. He looked like a kid in his prime who still had some control years left, could be part of the rebuild. Then as the year went on, we started to see his liabilities on defense. Is this guy going to be just a DH? Does he need to learn to play first base? And then he hurt his elbow. For the full season, his triple slash line, 253, 329, 441. 21 home runs, 69 RBIs. But most of that damage done in the first half. Hit 286 in the first half, only 128 in the second half after he injured that elbow. Missed some time, and then he came back just as a DH. Only three of his home runs after the break. Hit only 100 the last month of the year. That elbow must be a big issue because I am 
sure, if you're looking at this move thinking, what the F is Jerry DePoto doing? I am sure from watching how, how he operates over the last four years that Jerry checked the market, did his due diligence, and found there wasn't a market. So it opens up a 40-man roster spot. There are still reports and rumors out there that Omar Narvaez has a lot of interest around the league. Um, my buddy and friend of the show, Eric Briggs, texted yesterday, said he's hearing some things that maybe Tom Murphy is the guy teams are asking about. The catching market is thin. That's going to work in the Mariners' favor. Uh, the Narvaez thing, when it broke, uh, sounded like it was imminent. Why is it taking so long? I suspect it means the market may be strong enough that Jerry wants to milk this as much as he can. Or maybe there is now interest. When word got out that Narvaez is, is available, teams did start asking about Murray or Murphy, and, and he's trying to weigh the pros and cons. Ultimately, he's going to want to do what's best for the, the rebuild and, and acquire the best return that he can. Um, maybe he's just milking this to see if he can get more at the winter meetings and we'll see something uh, next week. But because of that non-tender deadline, there are some really, really interesting names. And this is a trend in baseball. I, Off the top of my head, the numbers are something like three years ago, only 18 or 19 of these players were non-tendered. Last year it was in the 20s, and this year it was close to 50, I believe. And these guys just become free agents. Most of them are coming off injury. Most of the interesting ones. And the teams just don't want to pay an arbitration number for a player that isn't going to give them return in 2020. And there are three that I am most interested in, and they're all starting pitchers. When I look for potential breakout candidates, I'm looking at starting pitchers. We know this team can find bullpen arms. And we know there really aren't a lot of opportunities for position players of this of this ilk, of this nature. We've got enough bodies on the field. But if you can find a starting pitcher, and this happens all the time, where guys bounce back, either from injury or just an offseason or a bad situation, change of scenery. We saw it with Annabelle Sanchez for the Washington Nationals. Do they win that World Series without his contributions in the postseason? I don't know. Now, that's an older type free agent that was coming off a down year, but these are younger guys coming off injury. Well, two out of the three are. And one of them is a very familiar name. Taiwan Walker traded to the Arizona Diamondbacks a couple years ago along with Cattell Marte in exchange for Mitch Haniger, Gene Segura, and uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the name now. Zach. Uh, there was a left-handed reliever that didn't stick around long also in that deal. Anyway, Haniger clearly was the, the big prize in that trade, although Segura helped us land J.P. Crawford. And so that's the trade that keeps on giving. Walker looked really good um, in 2018. And then he had Tommy John surgery. Um, 2019, I think he pitched an inning or two at the very end of the season. And so this is kind of, it sounds like he's kind of where Sam Carlson is. The Mariners second round draft pick from a few years ago where he was healthy at the end of the year, but they were cautious with him. Now he, he has another full off season to recover and get stronger. 
and he could be able to contribute in 2020 and beyond. Still only 27, just turned 27 in August. So he's going to play almost the entire 2020 season at the age of 27. For a pitcher, that's not quite your prime. If he's healthy 100%, if he feels good about coming back to this organization, even though the the staff that drafted and developed him isn't here any longer, would make a lot of sense. Really worth a flyer if the Mariners can get him. When Jerry Depoto was hired, he specifically pointed out some of the advantages to taking the Mariners job. And at the time, he talked about Felix Hernandez, Robinson Cano, and Kyle Seeger. And he talked about Taiwan Walker. And I'll never forget this quote because he used the term, we think he's a young guy that can shoot the moon. Now, was he just building him up because he had an idea that maybe he would be a good trade piece? Or did he not realize that he'd be in play as a trade chip until the Hanager-Segura opportunity presented itself? Don't know. But if that's truly how he did feel about it, about him, think about this. Look at the money they gave Yusei Kikuchi last year to come over from Japan. He was 27. Now, granted, healthy, dominant career in Japan. But they didn't sign him to win games last year. They signed him to be part of the rebuild. That's why Taiwan Walker is so attractive. If they really believe that that elbow is sound. I think he's had some minor shoulder issues, issues, but it's mostly the elbow. At the age of 27, he could be a nice little get. Would love to see him come back. I've talked about Aaron Sanchez before. Uh, he's a guy, if you remember, he's the guy that started the combined no-hitter for the Houston Astros last year. He pitched the first six innings of that. And at the time, I remember thinking, who the hell is this guy that we can't hit? I wasn't that familiar with his Toronto career. He had the great 2016 season in Toronto at the age of 23, 24. Went 15-2 with a 3.0 ERA. Was an all-star. He's not an overpowering pitcher. uh, Less than a strikeout per inning. About seven strikeouts per nine. Three walks per nine. But he has good stuff, good feel for his pitches, a lot of movement promising young pitcher who's had injury issues. He is due, oh, I think the projected money is five, six, seven million dollars maybe this year in arbitration. I don't know how current injuries affect the arbitration process. But uh, but he'd be a good get for the Mariners as well as if they feel like he has a chance to be healthy. And he hasn't, since 2016, he hasn't matched that production and he's had some injuries since then. So maybe he's just one of those guys that, that isn't worth taking a flyer on, but he's a really interesting name. If he can put it all together and get healthy, he could be um, an absolute steal as a buy low type guy. Uh, maybe the most intriguing of all, even though his ceiling, his upside might not be as exciting as Taiwan Walker, Aaron Sanchez, Kevin Gossman. He was DFA'd by the Cincinnati Reds. He'll be 29 in January. Not quite 30. He was the fourth pick overall out of LSU by Baltimore in the 2012 draft. What I like about him is there have been no injury issues. This is just a guy who hasn't put it all together. Since 2016, though, he's made over 30 starts a year since he became a full-time established starter in Major League Baseball. So he could really give the Mariners 
what they lack right now. And that's a workhorse from the right side. And a veteran. And also a guy who had enough upside to be the fourth pick in the draft. And we know how Jerry loves that. And I think he's been quoted as saying something like, that guy was drafted so high because something saw some someone saw something special in him. How many former first-round picks has he acquired in the last year or two? He was converted to the bullpen with the Reds last year and, and looked good. And maybe that's where he wants to be, in which case he wouldn't make sense unless the Mariners see him as a potential closer and he's a guy that they could flip. But if he still wants to start, sometimes some of these guys, especially the ones that are high-profile, high-draftees, they see themselves as a starter. He may be looking for opportunity more than he is the chance to win or make a few more dollars. If the Mariners are one of the only teams offer him offering him the opportunity to be in their rotation, and with what that development staff has shown and how they've worked with some pitchers, changing his mix, improving a pitch, getting rid of a pitch, made over $9 million last year in Baltimore, don't know what it would take to get him, might have to go a guaranteed two years. Um, but he's intriguing. He's uh, he's Mike Leak as far as being a workhorse, but with way more upside. So just a few names to keep an eye on there. Uh, I think those guys that will all have a market. I think Walker and Gossman maybe more than Sanchez because of the Sanchez's deeper uh, medical file. So maybe something could happen even as early as next week when uh, everyone's trying to trying to get in on these guys. Um, the winter meetings again next week. Here's what I would do. If you want to stay on top of this stuff, there's a couple of things you can do. If you don't have MLB trade rumors, the app, download it immediately. Set the Mariners as your favorite team and turn on notifications. Um, and then build yourself a baseball list on Twitter. I did this a year ago and it helps so much at times like this, the winter meetings, the off season. Start with Ken Rosenthal, Jeff Passan. And then go to the Mariners, Beat Riders, Ryan Divish, Craig Johns. Just search for all those well-known baseball guys. And then add the guys that have great insight, like Jason Churchill. And follow them on this baseball list. It's the quickest, easiest way to get breaking news and, um, and stay on top of things. Let's talk some college football. Um, so... I imagine many of you, in fact, I can tell uh, about half. It, it's interesting. I can now see how much of my listenership um, is or are Cougar fans because about 40% of my normal listening number or number of listens, I guess, uh, tuned in for my my little post-game analysis rant, whatever you want to call it, of uh, the Apple Cup and where I think that WSU program is and where I think they should be in regards to their head coach. Um, so I know it's a little bit less than half, but it's honestly it's closer to half than I thought it would be. Maybe it's uh, although maybe some of some of you who listened are Husky fans and just wanted to hear the Cougar side of things. But regardless, um, coaching carousel is kind of in full swing right now. In college football, a lot of high-profile jobs are open. 
some aren't. It sounds like USC now might stick with Clay Helton, which is really surprising to me. Um, as far as Mike Leach goes, um, there's very little hard news, although it seems to be heating up a little bit. There was the fake Twitter account uh, announcement that he was hired by Ole Miss a couple days ago that caught a lot of people off guard. It fooled me. Uh, somebody had hacked an actual uh, reporter who covers the Ole Miss program, and um, and that's why it got such traction at first. But um, there doesn't seem to be, or there don't seem to be any reports out there that Leach has interviewed with Ole Miss, although I have seen a CBS Sports story that he should be one of their candidates. And he was listed among some of the favorites. Uh, just today, though, there was a report that Leach has interviewed and he has met with um, officials from Arkansas. Um, I mentioned last week that Barry Switzer, who is an Arkansas alum, uh, highly endorsed Mike Leach last week. Said that he would be the right guy for the job. Um, so we'll see. There are... A lot of tie-ins and and uh, connections with all of this to Lane Kiffin. He's also linked to those two jobs. He's considered by by some to be the favorite for the Arkansas job, but he's also been mentioned in connection with the Ole Miss job and the Missouri job. So I like to do deep Twitter dives on this and do name searches. Do Mike Leach, Arkansas. Mike Leach, Ole Miss. Mike Leach, Mizzou. Mike. And you dig into, um, you get a lot of speculation, you get a lot of memes, you get a lot of, you know, crackpots and, and people who think they're funny and you get a lot of, oh, hell no, I don't want any part of that guy. And then you also get the alumni who is, air quotes, in the know and has connections and uh, take those with a grain of salt, certainly. But, but I did stumble on one who had an interesting theory about the Arkansas job. He said it's Kiffin's job to lose. And I have read in other places that Kiffin has really wanted this Arkansas job and thinks he would be a good fit. Chance to get back in the SEC. Go against Alabama. Um, or I'm sorry, that would be the Ole Miss job. But, it, but it's a higher profile job. He's at Florida Atlantic right now. He's done a great job there. But it's certainly not the high-profile job that Kiffin wants. I think Kiffin could have gone to the NFL a couple years ago. I even was campaigning for him at the time uh, for Seahawks offensive coordinator the year that they hired Brian Schottenheimer. But clearly by taking the FAU, FAU job, Kiffin has, has made it clear he sees himself as a college coach, wants to be a big-time college head coach again after some of the mistakes he made uh, previously. FAU's conference championship game is Sunday. So this is the theory laid out by this, this one alum who claims he's connected. That the job's on the table. It's Kiffin's to take or turn down. He's not going to do anything until after his team's conference championship game on Sunday. That maybe he's waiting to see what happens also as far as interest from Ole Miss or Mizzou or Florida State, who's been eerily quiet throughout their whole search. He may be waiting that out but that it's his job to take or reject. And this person also opines that Leach is the fallback. That Mike Leach is interested in the job. He wants the job. 
and that he would be the second choice at Arkansas if Kiffin were to turn it down. Who knows if any of that is true? It seems plausible enough, but here's my theory. And here's what I think is a real possibility. It sure sounds like Kiffin has traction. He's going to get one of these jobs. Let's say Kiffin goes to Arkansas. Now the Florida Atlantic job is open. It's in South Florida. It's in Boca Raton. I drove right past the campus when Erica and I went to her old hometown of Jupiter last year. It's near Leach's home and favorite spot in Key West. FAU paid Kiffin just over $3 million last year. Leach is making $4 million at WSU. I get that. But this may be about more than money for Leach. It would be a job that would give him an opportunity to continue building a program. Kiffin's done a good job there, but he could take it to another level. He could recruit Florida athletes against Florida and Florida State and be near his home. If Kiffin moves on, look for Leach to be attached to that FAU job. It wouldn't shock me in the least. I've also resigned myself to the fact that he may be back for another season. In which case, okay, here we go. We'll talk about that then, and we'll break down the roster, and we'll see who the quarterback is, all of that. But something pretty interesting happened on Montlake this week, too. On Monday, the shocking breaking news that Chris Peterson had stepped down as the head coach of the Huskies, not to pursue another job, presumably he's going to stay attached to the athletic department. There's already speculation he may take a TV job, but this seems like another one of those classic cases of job burnout. That those who know him and are close to him saw this coming, and that it's why Jimmy Lake turned down opportunities to get head coaching jobs last year that he knew he was the successor. And so here we go. Well, this my first question was, will this affect the rivalry? When I first saw the breaking news, I didn't see the Jimmy Lake succession plan immediately go into effect. So for a split second, I thought, yes, this might be the, the small chink in the armor. Maybe they hire someone who just doesn't match up as well with the air raid, and, and it'll give us a little better shot in the Apple Cup for years to come. But no, of course they... Of course they promote Jimmy Lake. He's been a loyal soldier there. What he's done with that defense has been remarkable. It'll be interesting to see if he sticks with Bush Hamden or what direction he goes on offense. But just the fact that he's there, he's leading the program now. He's going to be in charge of that defense, no matter who is named the defensive coordinator. And I think it's uh, Kwiatkowski, if I'm saying that name right. I don't know. And he seems to be very well regarded and on the same page and in that scheme and everything else. So I, I, I don't see it changing. Um, except if there's one tiny little kernel of doubt that Lake is the right thing for Husky football, it's he, he may have to learn how to act more head coach. Like it's like when we hear, hear the term presidential, right? So many of us don't like our current president, not because of his politics or his stance on the issues, but just because how he acts doesn't exactly represent our country in the best light. Sorry, that's as political as I will ever get on this podcast. I promise you that. Well, never say never. 
Chris Peterson was so dignified in the way he represented that program. Jimmy Lake is cocky. He is egotistical. He is outspoken. He's brash. And the fan base, I'm sure, loves that. Coming from a head coach, though, sometimes that can have a detrimental effect. So we'll see. I, I think he's the, the right guy for the job and, and the right candidate. I think he's going to do wonders at UW. Young players are going to love playing for him. He'll probably even be more successful in recruiting than Chris Peterson was. Um, but it was a great hire for UW. And I wish Chris Peterson all the best. I, as a Coug fan, the day he was hired, knowing him from Boise State, where I, I lived in Boise for a while, and actually worked on the coaches show there uh, one year. Um, not when he was the head coach, but I, as a Kook fan, I went, ah, crap. <laughs> Cause I knew he was going to have success. Um, they're not going to have any drop off under Jimmy Lake at all. Um, we will just see who the Cougar coach is next year when they play the Apple cup again, uh, this time in Pullman. That's going to wrap it up for me this week. Episode 63 is in the books. Uh, appreciate the support. Thank you for listening. If you don't subscribe to the podcast yet, hit that subscribe button. That'll keep you in the know, and you'll be alerted when there are new episodes. Next week, we will have much to talk about again. We'll break down the Seahawks-Rams game and the 49ers-Saints contest and see how those go and check in on where the Seahawks are in the standings. Um, I will unveil a five-round mock draft I completed for the Seahawks today. I'll write that up for Seahawks Maven. Um, and we'll talk about it on the podcast next week as well. Um, follow me on Twitter if you don't already, at Seahawks Forever. That's going to do it for me this week. Thank you again. My name is Dan Vienz. I appreciate you listening to the Dan Cave. We'll see you next week. Go Kooks. Go Seahawks. Go Mariners.